thank you everybody for coming today. Um, for those of you who are in the room, could I ask you to make sure your devices are on silent? Um, if you want to tweet, uh, the hashtag today is human tech, and we're at Oxmartin School. Um, and welcome to anybody who's watching live online. Um, I'm delighted today to welcome Dr. Fred Hirsch and Dr. Gary Clifford to speak on how mobile phone technology smartphones can be used in healthcare, both in the developed and developing world. Um, Dr. Hirsch is Clinical Research Fellow in Essential Healthcare at the George Institute um, here in Oxford, which is part of the Oxford Martin School programs. Um, and he focuses there on the intersection of healthcare and technology, looking at how we can harness technologies to improve access to essential healthcare. healthcare. Before working in academia, he was a medical doctor and had a career in the technology sector. And as part of that, he was co-founder of an NGO called MedTech Outreach Australia, um, an NGO working in telemedicine. Um, he's also part of the NCD Free team, which uses tech and new media to raise awareness and action on um, preventable NCDs. Um, Dr. Gary Clifford, who's joining us via Skype today, is Associate Professor of Phil Bioinformatics and Biomedical Engineering. He's also the Director for Affordable Healthcare Technologies at Kellogg College and the Interim Director of Affordable Healthcare at the George Institute for Global Health. Prior to Oxford, uh, Gary was a Principal Research Scientist at MIT, where he developed a number of award-winning um, mHealth projects and research. So I'd like to welcome our speakers, and we'll start with Dr. Hirsch. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here today at the Oxford Martin School, um, talking about one of the grand challenges, really, of the 21st century and an area that I myself, and I know Gary as well, are very passionate about, and that's healthcare, and how technology, in particular mobile phones and smart devices, provide an exciting opportunity for transforming the way we think and deliver care. So what is the problem? I suppose I wanted to start by saying something. You know, there have been a lot of improvements over the last, you know, 20 years or so, and when we look at the global burden of disease, we see on the left, on the left side 1990 and on the right side 2010. And if you look at the, the, the changing order of the ranks there, you've got some infectious diseases are dropping down, those are the blue, and in the red you've got some non-communicable diseases or NCDs that are moving up. And the trend in infectious disease rates falling is, is, is good, it's a good thing, particularly for infant under five mortality. Um, it's not enough to meet the Millennium Development Goals, but the trend is definitely heading in the right direction. On the other hand, though, and partly due to our global success, if you like, and the globalisation of the common risk factors for non-communicable diseases, the burden from these is going up quite dramatically. And those are things like heart disease, as you can see, ischemic heart disease and stroke, um, and other conditions like diabetes, cancer and chronic lung diseases. And this is set to continue. So by 2030, the prediction is that infectious disease rates will be decreased by 7 million, and whilst NCDs will roughly double over that time. And this is really a truly global problem. So NCDs cause 63% of global deaths, and 80% of those occur in low middle income countries. And the major uh, you know, factors that have been attributed to this are smoking, poor diet, physical inactivity, and harmful use of alcohol. 
And it's in resource poor settings, in developing economies, where NCDs kind of have the most impact, if you like. They affect younger populations, so you find the first age of a heart attack is much lower, 53. And 90% or 8 million NCD deaths actually occur before the age of 60. It's on a different scale to, I think, anything that we really can think of. So I just wanted to use this example of type 2 diabetes. And it's estimated currently there's over 350 million people living with type 2 diabetes. It's probably an underestimate. You know, the latest figures from a study in JAMA, I believe, looking in China, suggest that 10% or approximately 110 million people there have type 2 diabetes. And I think what's incredible about this is that one in two people are unaware of the diagnosis. And it's, in fact, a largely preventable condition. So to phrase our global health challenge, I'd say, you know, currently over half of the world lacks access to the basic medical care required to either prevent or manage these common conditions that will cause premature death or disability. And that the social and economic consequences of this are, are enormous. You know, the w, World Economic Forum predicts something like $43 trillion loss in economic output as a result of NCDs, let alone the social costs of premature death. And it's not a lack of know-how. We have plenty of evidence and you know, we've spent the better part of decades generating guidelines for how do we best manage these conditions, how can we prevent these conditions from all the way through from childhood illnesses in under fives through to type 2 diabetes and heart disease. And the George Institute itself, in fact, has been, you know, as a world-leading research institute, has contributed significantly to this evidence base. And the question is not a matter of how, but it's well, not a matter of lack of know-how, but how do we go and translate a lot of these interventions, which are some of the most cost-effective that we have um, at our disposal. So it's a problem of implementation. You know, on the one hand, individuals lack, there's a lack of knowledge, which comes from lack of access to information, lack of choices in health literacy, obviously education. Health systems, particularly in developing countries, are weak, and they lack the adequate financial and human resources. So there's, over, there's a, a gap of over 2.5 million health workers globally, mainly in developing countries, where you know, it's very common to have less than one doctor per thousand people. And health systems that are already struggling are very ill-equipped to deal with these new non-communicable diseases like heart disease and diabetes that require a different kind of response. They're chronic in nature. And there are lots of local barriers that need to be addressed. So the world has changed in other ways too, and this is the exciting thing. You know, the spread of, of communications technology has been unprecedented in history. So today, 90% of the world is covered with at least basic mobile phone access. It's more people than have access to you know, water and sanitation. And if you look particularly on the far right of the page, like the, the rate of this is so dramatic. It's faster than any other, you know, any other technology in history. And the coverage that people have currently allows them to make phone calls, send and receive text messages. But these networks are rapidly expanding to provide more support more data, which basically provides access to the internet. And there's four billion people who currently aren't online. So this mobile phone revolution, if you like, has created new opportunities and new markets. You think about M-Pesa and mobile banking in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, 
And for the first time in history, we can really start to think about bringing healthcare to people, even in the most remote corners of the world. And that's really what we call mHealth. So mHealth is the use of mobile and wireless technologies to support the achievement of health. And it's a really broad field and makes it a little bit challenging um, because really any use of a mobile phone is for anything related to health uh, is classified as mHealth. And over the last decade or so, there's been you know, proliferation of small projects or pilots. And mainly those have focused on how we can use initially kind of PDAs, but now simple mobile phones to do things like promoting behaviour change, so smoking cessation via text messaging, medication adherence for patients, uh, particularly with chronic diseases or things like HIV, um, for supporting health workers, especially in the areas of child and maternal health care, avoiding drug stockouts, so thinking about some of those health system barriers, um, having available medications at the time they're needed, preventing uh, the peddling of counterfeit medications, and improving data collection. And I'd say whilst, this, you know, whilst the evidence base itself is still emerging, the debate around M Health, I think, has shifted now from not if, but how. So I think it's an exciting time to be alive, actually. Um, I think the world is changing at an unprecedented rate. And most of us here you know, rely on technology in ways that was really unimaginable a decade ago. I mean, I do in ways that was unimaginable two years ago. So we've had this convergence of you know, computers with connected devices with mobility. And I think that's what these smart devices, smartphones and tablets, and even the new category called phablets, which is a phone that's a tablet, um, are allowing us to do. And I think that you know, this is the dominant computing device of the future. I want to show you why. So if you think about how quickly uh, mobile phone coverage and usage spread, the same thing is happening now for smartphones. So globally, uh, it's predicted that by 2019, there'll be 5.6 billion smartphones. A lot of those connections will take place in developing economies where mobile telephony networks will have spread to be able to support 3G and other data speeds to allow them to, do, to access the internet and other things. And in fact, this year alone, in India, there's set to be over 400 million uh, subscribe, you know, 400 million users of smart devices. That's more than America. There'll be over a billion Android devices, and you know, technology is getting faster. It's getting cheaper. Again, predict, it's predicted that there'll be a $50 US dollar phone from China this year. This here is a, a phone that you can get for 50 pounds. So I think that. There's the potential that developing countries, if you don't look too far ahead, looking, looking ahead, sorry, but not too far, developing countries could leapfrog the PC era. And I think that there are amazing possibilities for health. So there are some things that are holding us back. There's been a lot of hype around mHealth. Maybe I'm contributing to it here, but I think there has been a lot of hype. It's suffering from what they call pilotitis, not really being able to break out of small-scale projects and other things. And I think some of that you know, some of those questions are around recognising that mHealth is not a standalone solution. You know, it's really going to be, how does it fit into our daily lives, whether that be work or play, um, for doctors, for health workers and for patients alike. And I think it's a question of design. So understanding, you know, what are the unmet needs that healthcare can help solve and then moving towards solutions. 
So I wanted to tell you a little bit about Smart Health Program, which is a research and development program at the George Institute for Global Health that I work on, and it's around primary care. And SMART stands for Systematic Medical Assessment and Referral and Treatment. And it's a program that draws on our experience of translating some of this evidence into practice. And that's come out of our primary care group. And it's about affordable, technology-assisted, high-quality primary care systems. So the goal of the program is to really address the major causes of, of the global causes of, of ill health. We've started with cardiovascular disease, that's an area that we're very familiar with. So this is a, this is a big picture um, and it's a bit of a schematic about our mHealth ecosystem, if you like, for primary care. And there's a few things that I wanted to emphasise. This is really about understanding how current and emerging technologies can work in an in a integrated fashion, if you like. And it very much focuses on addressing some of the human and system factors that are vital to this work. This is not just about the technology, but about seeing it within this ecosystem. And so the idea is you know, quite simple. Um, what, we, what we're doing is building out a suite of decision support tools that allow us to harmonise guidelines that are contextually relevant, so they're different for different for different places, and then build different mechanisms for delivery according to the use case. So they're complementary. So if you think about, you know, there's, you know, there's, a, there's a clinic scenario where you might be seeing a doctor or a health worker, but we also want a patient to be able to be supported by these, and we want a carer to potentially be supported. So the same, the same kind of decision support can be delivered in different ways and on different types of technology. And, um, you know, one of the exciting things is how can we use this to equip health workers on the ground with the tools, so on a low-cost tablet device, together with diagnostics and sensors, to be able to provide quality care. And that's what we're doing um, with a prog program in India that we've worked with Gary's group on. So this is the Andhra Pradesh Rural Health Initiative. So the George Institute's been working there for um, a number of years now. It's, you know, it has a number of primary healthcare centres which are supported by government uh, and NGO-funded village-based healthcare workers. It's a population of over 200,000 people that have very limited access to qualified doctors, um, but there are lots of healthcare workers. And so what we've been doing here is working with an international collaboration of public health, medical, engineering, technology, some design, and we've built a, a clinical decision support tool that's focusing on cardiovascular disease. So this particular um, decision support tool is based on the WHO guidelines. Um, that's what they would use uh, in, the, in rural India. And it's been built together with kind of involving people within the community. Um, it's been translated into the local language. Obviously, the picture on the right doesn't, it doesn't demonstrate that. And really what we're doing is, is, is equipping community health workers or ushers who are effectively high school trained, maybe um, mainly, mainly women, who go out into the community and can then identify people at, at high risk of cardiovascular disease. And you know, what we've found in the preliminary results of the pilot is that you know, there's over 30% of people within this community are at high cardiovascular disease risk which means that they could benefit from lifestyle modification or low-cost treatment that could prevent future ill health. And 
So the community health worker is out there with a the tablet device is able to perform this assessment. They're able to then act as a bridge. They can provide some communication. They can provide some education and advice to a patient, to the community. They can refer them into the clinic where a doctor using a similar type of device or system can then take the necessary steps. At the moment, a, a community health worker can't prescribe medications, for example. And then on the patient side, patients, if they have access to a basic mobile phone, can sign up for, to receive uh, support via SMS in terms of uh, medication adherence and reminders to come back to the clinic. So this is a, this is a, a study that's going on. It's been funded by NHMRC in Australia. Um, we've completed a pilot phase and it's about to go into a large-scale trial that will involve 18 primary health care centres, 54 villages and over 10,000 people. So before I hand over to Gary, I just wanted to end on this note. I think that, you know, I think there's really exciting opportunities for smartphones, for mobile phones, for technology, but technology is really only part of the solution. I think this is a, you know, we have a, it's a design problem, it's a design question. And I think it's really vital that we work to understand the context, that we collaboratively explore ideas, brainstorming and iterating and pro developing prototypes, and then we work on developing the solutions that we can evaluate in the, uh, in the local context. Thank you. Ooh. Right, I'm not sure to take over, right? Yeah, got it. Can everybody see me okay? Okay, well, Fred, that was a wonderful survey of, um, of all of the uh, issues, I think, around um, AM health and the potential. What I wanted to do was just drill down a couple of um, specifics of the technology and talk about um, what some of the issues are, some of the potentials and some of the, um, the pitfalls as well, and what the future landscape might be around AM health and particularly the use of smartphones. So, um, if I can get the slides to advance. There we go. So, I think you can, you can talk about what the potential is in terms, in a, a nice soundbite, uh, which we could call smartphones, thumb sensors, and big data. So, the, the essential key is that we have these incredibly powerful smartphones that are ubiquitous and increasingly so. Uh, and they contain within them a series of sensors, as, as Fred has pointed out, but also uh, they have the potential for very simple sensors, very low-cost sensors to be plugged into them, um, either through directly through USB ports or uh, wirelessly through Bluetooth uh, or other wireless modes. And so we have this potential to be able to hook in the, these peripheral devices into the smartphones and collect an enormous amount of data, what people are uh, calling big data, for want of a better term. And so we're going to be able to collect masses of datas, data from individuals that we then need to know how to process. What I'm showing here are three brief examples that I'm gonna, going to talk about. The top one is a, a blood pressure device, uh, which a group of my students here have, have built. In the bottom right-hand corner, 
um, we have a, a very um, MacGyver-like uh, digital stethoscope. And in the bottom left, we have what, what we call smart pumps. And this is a collaboration with uh, Geography and uh, is looking at ways of uh, providing monitoring of clean water. So let me talk about the design aspects of a very, very simple peripheral device that can take a smartphone into um, a, an intelligent diagnostic instrument. So this, uh, this little device here that you can see in the center has, um, I don't know if you can see my cursor over this, but there's, uh, in the central picture, you can see a tiny little um, sensor that is picking up just pressure. So on the previous slide, I showed that this was plugged into a standard blood pressure cuff that a doctor um, uses in everyday scenarios. And on the other end, there's a USB port that allows you to plug it directly into the phone. And then all we've done is stuck it in a tic-tac box as a temporary low-cost solution to an enclosure. So this, this device has a $1 blood pressure sensor in it, or a pressure sensor. And the cuff that it plugs into, this standard cuff, turns out to cost $1 to $2 itself. So now we have a $2, 3 $4 uh, device, depending on how much your manufacturing costs are. Um, it doesn't require any power because it draws that parasitically directly from the phone and it can upload information directly into the phone which can then pass into the cloud and straight onto a healthcare worker. So there's no information loss, there's no transcription, there's no transcription errors and the data is just passed cleanly through in a store and forward manner into a back-end database. The phone itself does all the blood pressure calculations, checks the quality of the signal, and then feeds back the information to the user. And this is the key, I think. Not only is the device extremely low cost and essentially disposable and um, can be supplied with the phone, so you're dealing with supply chain issues, but it can also intelligently interact with the user to tell the user whether they're using it correctly. And this can be in a very complex way and um, can involve videos, images, and using the sensors on the phone, decide what the posture of the patient is, what the, what the uh, movement of the patient is, and whether the quality of the signal is acceptable for our diagnostic purposes. So this is the key, I think, that we have this new paradigm where we're able to interact with the caregiver and the patient in real time and feedback information to them about the use of the device and then upload the, the data directly into a database which then pings the medical healthcare professionals and refers them on for further treatment or uh, provides an assessment and a diagnosis or, or um, a prescription there and then. Second example I want to show you is something perhaps even more simple. This is one of the first projects that um, we, uh, we started at MIT and then um, David Springer and Tom Brennan continue to develop out to this day at the Institute of Biomedical Engineering in Oxford. And this is basically a digital stethoscope. So if you look on um, the app market, you'll see plenty of digital stethoscopes, but essentially they're voice recorders. The difference here is that this digital stethoscope 
has a processing system within it that allows us to actually analyze the data and give a reading. It's, it consists of basically the hands-free kit that comes with the phone together with an egg cup. So what you can see in the top right there is an egg cup with a hole drilled out of the back of it. And then the microphone of the hands-free kit is just blue tacked into the hole. So this is your stethoscope. And by plugging it into the phone, we have an incredibly powerful audio uh, signal processing unit within the phone that we often use for voice analysis or voice encoding. And we're using that to process the data and pull out useful indicators about cardiac activity. One of the key things again here is that the phone checks the quality of the recording as well as analyzing the rhythm. So if you look at the interface on the bottom right hand corner, what you see is across the bottom uh, five stars and then two and a half of them are filled in green. What that's telling you is that the signal quality of this particular recording that it's making at this point in time is not particularly high and that the user might want to reposition the stethoscope to, uh, to produce a better recording. At the same time, they can be listening to the recording and actually producing for themselves whether they can hear um, the heart beating. The other thing it does at the end of the recording is um, produce the, a, a recording that the user can play back and also uh, a diagnosis of the rhythm. Again, all of the data is uploaded to a back-end database. So the user never loses any data and they associate this directly with the patient they're recording the data from and then a referral can be made almost immediately. At the moment we're trialing this in South Africa and looking at rheumatic heart disease in, uh, in children and we're hoping to have um, some um, clinical results from that later in the year. The third project I wanted to tell you about is um, Smart Water for Development. So this is a collaboration with, um, with Geography, with uh, Patrick Thompson and Rob Hope there who uh, lead the um, Smart Water project. And what our engineers at the Institute of Biomedical Engineering have done is provide some mobile phone technology to help the monitoring situation. So the key here is that one in three hand pumps in Africa are non-functioning. The fault can take weeks to be reported and the systems of maintenance are highly variable and quite inefficient. So there can be a lack of safe drinking water for a significant period of time. And this has large health and economic downstream impacts. And often the effect is irreversible, especially if this occurs to young children. So we're all fairly familiar with the idea of provision of clean water being essential. But the key here is that you can provide a pump to uh, allow communities to access the clean water and that's the kind of pump that you see in the bottom right hand corner and even though it's incredibly robust the fact is it's being pumped thousands of times a day so obviously it has mechanical failures so the key is how do we notice this either early or even before the actual um, failure occurs so our solution was to plug place the guts of a mobile phone within the handle of the pump itself. So what you can see here 
is uh, in the bottom right hand corner is a picture of Patrick testing the, uh, the innards of this pump handle and installing this, it's basically a, a GPRS unit with an accelerometer built in, so just really the, the guts of a mobile phone completely stripped down. And what happens is, as you pump the pump, pump the pump, it records accelerometry or movement in the pump handle, and then that leads to a uh, a calculation of how much that the pump handle has been pumped, and then an hourly text message sends out uh, a calibrated amount of water that's that um, has been pumped out of the well. One of the key issues is if it stops getting pumped or it's being pumped uh, almost at random, that means that there's probably a fault going on in the pump handle uh, and people are not accessing clean water from the pump anymore. So what happens is that we're able to monitor that in real time and report faults extremely quickly and send out somebody to repair the, the unit. Um, in fact, by doing this, we can even hope to predict when these failures are going to occur because obviously mechanical failures are preceded by um, sometimes a rapid, sometimes a slow mechanical failure. So what we'll see is um, increased juddering in the handle that we can pick up from the accelerometer and then we can translate that into a warning to tell somebody to proactively go out and maintain the pump. It also allows for objective data for monitoring and regulatory oversight by uh, the governments and donors and allows for better targeted um, future investment so we can work out what areas the pumps are being used in and what areas where there is actually no need for the pump. So it, it increases our ability to survey. And very a very key element to this is that uh, we also have a sustainability model uh, based on um, insurance. So essentially what happens is uh, you pay a small monthly amount to have this monitoring system placed in your water pump and then what that buys you is the insurance so that somebody will come out and maintain it and keep the water pump going um, and ensure that you have a continual supply of safe, clean drinking water. Okay, so I also wanted to talk a little bit about the risks of M Health. I think um, one of the key issues is that we have um, the danger of a lot of wheel reinvention. So what I mean by that is there's this danger that we could be developing yet another version of expensive Western healthcare where we require many experts to read the data. If you think about it, if we're trying to provide healthcare to billions of people who currently don't have access and yet the patient to doctor ratio is as high as 20,000 or even 50,000 to one in parts of Africa, then there's no way that we can sustainably and scalably build a healthcare system that's predicated on the idea that there's a doctor on the back end reading every single piece of data that comes in. So there needs to be a, new, a reinvention essentially of the healthcare system. We also need to think about sustainability. What kind of business model is going to allow us to deliver effective healthcare? Again, the models that we have in the West uh, are models that are leading to increasing percentages of our GDP being devoted to healthcare. And we have this increasing 
desire to spend more and more money on more and more tests, more and more interventions, and more and more technology. And what we need to be thinking about is how do we actually use the technology in an efficacious manner. There are obviously privacy issues. Many people are very worried about the idea of uh, somebody monitoring us, particularly for um, uh, sensitive conditions. Uh, people are worried about big databases being stolen and sold to drug companies. And so privacy is a key issue, but also there's um, the potential for high security as well. And also people are worried about targeting at-risk groups. So for example, if you can identify an entire village that has a high, ri uh, high prevalence of AIDS, is that going to uh, make them a target for um, other neighboring um, people to uh, to avoid them or disadvantage them in some in some sense, and these are all significant risks. We also have the issue of compliance and longevity. So <clears throat> it's easy to become wary of using new technology. There's plenty of examples out there of how technology seems to have a very positive effect in the first six months, and then people become very wary of using this technology. So we need to think very carefully about the incentives so that we don't end up having um, a lot of white elephants that essentially are, are expensive and pretty useless to the communities. We also need to think about the regulation, whether we over-regulate or under-regulate. Under-regulation is obviously a, a worry in terms of, uh, of malicious or um, non-validated apps, but we also have to think about carefully about whether we over-regulate and we put up artificial barriers that increase the costs of providing mHealth into the, the uh, indigent communities or the communities with low resources. Another key issue is the heterogeneity of the platforms and the devices. So we have many, many different systems that have many, many different sensors on them. And these can have different biases and variances. So you have to be very careful if you're talking about using and developing a, uh, an app and um, realizing that the actual sensor hardware within the phone isn't very homogenous and this heterogeneity of different sensors can lead to large differences in the uh, accuracy of any particular algorithm. And so thinking about how to deal with that uh, is going to be extremely important. And there's also the issue of overdiagnosis. <clears throat> At the moment, the Western healthcare system is tuned to be overly sensitive and under-specific. We're very worried about missing a particular event. We're worried about missing uh, diagnosing anybody. So what we do is we tune our algorithms to be overly sensitive, and then we hope that an expert on the back end is going to review this and will uh, will tell us whether there is actually a reason to continue the referral and, and whether it's actually a true positive or a, or a false positive. So uh, unfortunately, as I've already said, with billions of people trying to access healthcare and uh, only um, uh, with a very high patient-to-doctor ratio, that kind of paradigm is just simply going to overwhelm the healthcare system. Even if you have a 99% accurate diagnostic, if you're performing that every day and you're performing 10 other different uh, 
um, diagnostics every day or every week or even every year on four or six billion people who currently don't have access to healthcare, then you're going to totally swamp the healthcare system. <clears throat> One of the key issues, I think, at the moment is scientific validation of the apps. So currently there's a flood of random apps. In the top right, you can see um, there's, uh, that's actually how I slept um, uh, in November. So that's, uh, that's an app that tells me whether I was in deep or light sleep. So the deep is the big blue bar and the light blue is the light sleep. And that's purportedly telling me how well I slept and how much I oscillate our light and uh, deep and light sleep. Unfortunately, there's no um, publication that actually tells me how accurate that is. And I'm just expected to accept that uh, on face value. And also, I'm meant to diagnose for myself whether that means something good or something bad about my health. So these are two key issues. There's a lack of scientific validation and then there's a lack of follow-up or interpretation to turn this into something that's actually useful. Sleep monitoring is a prime example of this. There's in fact hundreds of apps out there and none of them actually provide scientifically grounded sleep quality estimates. We published an article on this uh, quite recently uh, and um, I'd encourage you to have a look at it um, if you're interested in the, the uh, landscape of apps that are out, mHealth apps that are available out there. You can see just the kind of um, heterogeneity of apps and what they're purporting to say but actually how little scientific evidence is behind these. In fact we surveyed um, over 60 apps on the market and we found that not one of them had any scientific grounding for the, uh, for the readings that they were feeding back to the user. <clears throat> what we have done um, in the last few years is try and address that issue by providing uh, and developing a validated series of apps. And this is another example of one of them. This is actually a sleep um, apnea detector. And it tells you your probability of having a risk of sleep apnea. So obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA, is when your, uh, your respiration um, period periodically ceases during the night because your airway is collapsing around um, your uh, esophagus and preventing you from breathing. And then the lack of oxygen and the buildup of carbon dioxide wakes your brain up. And this cycles for every two or three minutes during the night and prevents you from having restful sleep. And has a lot of downstream effects from traffic accidents to cardiovascular disease. Yet the screening for this um, is quite expensive and requires a series of referrals. What we've done is developed an app on the phone that allows you to, it, it analyzes your, the movement of your body as well as the snoring and optionally also the oxygen saturation in your bloodstream and then comes out using a machine learning algorithm of whether you're at risk of obstructive sleep apnea and then allows you to be referred downstream. And the key behind this is that we validated this using a database of uh, around about a thousand patients collected at the, one of the local sleep clinics in Oxford. It has 92% accuracy, 100% specificity, and 87% sensitivity. And you notice that this is one of the key issues 
we've actually tuned this to be extremely specific, but not extremely sensitive. Sensitivity is pretty good. But the key here is that we're not referring people if we're not absolutely 100% sure that they've got sleep apnea. I should note that this isn't, um, this isn't uh, CE marked or FDA approved, so it's not available for uh, usage right now. So the regulatory issues around this uh, are pretty interesting, but it's going to be exciting to see how we develop this and how we get it onto the market. So I just want to finish by saying that there are some big opportunities out there. Linking back to what Gary Kasparov said last term, there's enormous opportunity for humans and machines to work together. And as, um, as Fred was saying, the key, the key exciting thing here is that we're leapfrogging in many countries, leapfrogging personal computers. And the PC is really the actual mobile phone. And it's your pocket PC that's allowing you to interact with your own data. And what's going to happen, I think, is that the apps are going to teach people how to do diagnosis and how to look after their health. And also the user, as they gain more knowledge, is going to teach the app when it's right and when it's wrong and what knowledge it's missing. And then that's going to be absorbed into the app, uploaded to a cloud database, and the app's going to learn and evolve at the same time. So what we're having is this interaction between humans and machines so that we're able to provide medical diagnostics um, to the consumer or to the patient but the patient and consumer are also going to provide information that helps improve the device in almost real time. So we're going to have a learning healthcare system, I think, mediated through mobile phones. You're going to have um, a portable healthcare record for continuity of care. So you're going to be carrying around not necessarily the information on your phone, but at least a plug to a healthcare record in a cloud that allows you to be able to show your healthcare record to any provider whenever you need to. And this longitudinal medical record is going to be yours to do what you want with. It's going to allow rapid information transfer for diagnostics, referral and follow-up, even for the poorest and most remote people. And I think because of this, the opportunities far outweigh the risks. We've got a wonderful and exciting time here to reimagine global healthcare and potentially provide access to almost everybody on the planet. And I think that's the big opportunity and the big excitement here. I'm just going to finish by quickly throwing up a slide to thank all the funders, because of course this couldn't be possible. This kind of work isn't possible without people generously giving us money to do this kind of work around the world. And uh, I'm going to finish there. Thank you. Okay, so we have um, plenty of time for questions today. What I'd like to do is just get a feel for who, who in the room wants to ask a question, and then I can direct Clara to the first couple. We've got two at the front, Clara. Hi there. Um, just a question about the stethoscope. Now, previously, the... the, um, the Previously, the data from that stethoscope would have just gone into a doctor's ears and then be lost. But of course, you're now recording that data and then sending that data up to the cloud from hundreds and possibly thousands of people. 
you mentioned about the data sensitivities around that, but that does seem to be a very interesting database for possible future medical research. Is that a possibility? I'm sorry, could somebody repeat the question, yeah. please? I, I'm having trouble hearing it because of the echo. Yeah, so Gary, the question was basically around the digital stethoscope, um, collecting lots of, of heartbeats and heart sounds and then syncing that to the cloud. Um, what's the potential from a big data perspective? I think the potential is enormous. If you look at some of the databases that are out there at the moment, the public databases, that is, and perhaps even the private ones, they're fairly limited in scope. Um, even though uh, they're incredibly wonderful resources like physionet.org, if you look at this, they have hundreds, um, even thousands of patients in some databases. But what we're finding is that even though these were laboriously collected by hand and annotated by hand, and they're incredible resources that have le led to wonderful developments, what we're finding nowadays with big learning algorithms, with machine learning algorithms on big data, is that the heterogeneity of patients and uh, diseases is leading to the need to expand these databases enormously. And if we have an ability to capture this information across the planet, through mobile phones and upload it to databases where we can um, assemble enormous databases, then I think it's likely to lead to um, a, a watershed moment in our ability to process these data and provide incredible diagnostics. I think our limitation at the moment is just really the, um, the volume of the labeled data that we can get hold of. And labeling is a key issue as well that I can talk about. I was wondering if you've given consideration to using things like the mobile blood pressure to help with clinical trials, uh, both to try and detect adverse events and also uh, increase the number of data points that can be captured. So, do you mean specifically the adverse events around, around what kind of... Um, I'm thinking maybe in a phase one trial where you'd be doing lots of monitoring of blood pressure to check that there are no adverse events and the drug's not having any untoward interactions and then later on you may send the patient home and only get them back in once a week to check. Maybe with this you could be doing more frequent checking yeah. which could give you information on adverse events but also give you better data about the effectiveness of the drug. Yeah, right. So, so Gary, it's another question about... Um, I suppose the opportunity for using remote blood pressure monitoring um, in potentially in clinical trials, phase one clinical trials for pharmaceuticals and others where you're trying to pick up um, adverse events earlier on. Has there been any use of that? Are there any plans? And what do you think the opportunities are? So, yeah, I think, I think the opportunity for these kind of devices is um, is not so much in um, the area of things like clinical trials, unless you're doing something enormous um, uh, and in very remote regions like the, the smart health project that we have in southern India. I think the exciting thing around something like this is that you have the ability to provide the diagnostic capability to people in very remote regions um, and with very few resources, so outside of the clinical trial umbrella, really. Um, and, and yet allow them to be able to see the changes in their blood pressure over time, because 
except in very extreme cases, it's the slow change in your blood pressure from, um, from month to month, year to year, that's going to be uh, more the worrying thing than actually um, a one-off reading. And so enabling people to be able to sample themselves more frequently, I think, is going to be uh, a key benefit. I don't know if you want to talk to as well, Fred. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, I think that, you know, I think we sometimes take for granted um, the, the, the skill, if you like, that's required in, in taking blood pressure and things, you know, things that seem very, very simple. And yes, there's lots of, you know, electronic devices that run into all sorts of problems with calibration and other things. But I think that the opportunity is, yeah, is in, is in that um, the accuracy, the potential accuracy of a very simple device that's going straight into a mobile phone that's effectively plugged into you know, a patient's electronic health record. You know, all of these things are, are very much kind of emerging as, as real possibilities. Um, and I think for for resource poor settings, it can it can reduce a lot of that variability within a clinic setting. Yeah. Anybody else got a question? Yeah, the lady in the middle. Um, thank you for the presentation. I had a question on regulation in M Health. Um, are there any um, steps towards people who create non-scientific apps that would have negative impacts on health, and um, in the developed or uh, low and middle-income countries? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's a big, there's a big. Uh, sorry, do I, I'll just repeat the question around um, regulation, Gary, for for apps and for non-scientific people creating potentially medical or health-related apps. I mean, I think this touches on one of the big kind of problems that we have at the moment, which is, you know, to, to take a term, you know, we're in the midst of an epidemic, you know, to some extent. And when you look at health and wellness apps alone, there's something like almost 100,000 between, you know, the Apple Store and Google Play. And most of them are, you know, are useless. You know, they're not based on any kind of necessary, any evidence base. Um, you know, they, they can make whatever claims they want, really. Um, and I think that is a big that is a big challenge. You know, how do we how do we sift through all all the noise in order to find the signal when it comes to these types of things? So I think that there's a big role for um, for evidence-based apps. Uh, you know, the FDA in America um, has you know started to do things around you know apps that are effectively medical devices, and so they need to go through a process there. Um, but Gary, you might be able to comment a little bit further. But I think it's a really important question and a really um, important issue. Yeah, I, th I think it's one of the most important issues because clearly there has to be some type of regulation because you, um, you just don't want all of these apps on the market being used in a, in a diagnostic fashion. And I think 